the sponge, you know, like wets itself. Because it's scary. Because it's just like in a Japanese anime. Right. Welcome to No Clip. I'm Chad Rowland. I'm JJR Teammates. And I'm Andy Cannon. And today we're going to be talking about Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear Solid is a game that came out in 1998 uh, on the PlayStation 1. It uh, was developed and published by Konami. Um, and then, and I'm not going to bother with this, but it was re-released like uh, a couple of times. Um, uh, there was a re-release that we actually played on PlayStation 3 that came as part of a like Metal Gear Legacy collection. I think it's the actual name. And also was remade in the early 2000s at some point as the Twin Snakes on the GameCube. I assume as a justification for including Solid Snake and Super Smash Brothers Brawl. Because <laughs> uh, as far as I can tell, Konami didn't really have much of a relationship with Nintendo other than that. So uh, They had but, a little relationship. They had, they had like, were they in the same office building or some shit like that? This, this would be, that is so far outside the realm of things I know about video games. <laughs> Like, <laughs> where the offices of publishers are is not something that I, like, keep in my keep in my mind. Not really nearly plugged in enough to the news, Chad. I mean, E3 is going on right now. As we speak. And we're here recording a podcast instead of listening to the bounty of gaming news and, right. and coolness. Have you heard our show? Yes. We only talk about games that came out, like, 20 years ago. <laughs> 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 we also like shit on game shows. We did shit on the Golden games. Joystick Awards. Oh, I thought you just meant never mind. Not game shows like <laughs> like Family Feud. Yeah, yeah. Well, that made sense with the, with the twenty years ago theme, right? For some reason, when it's you said game shows, the only things that came to mind for me were board games, uh, which is not the same. Because I was gonna say game award shows, but E three is not one of those. Right. It's like a press conference. Right. Yeah. Anywho, it's a game stage, like ex- exposition. Sure, know. it was the the electronic entertainment exposition. Oh my god, Expo is short for exposition. It sure is. <sighs> so Metal Gear Solid is like a stealth action game, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> according to Wikipedia, is one of the greatest and most important games of all time. <laughs> Lending it sort of an air of gravitas Mm -hmm. that uh, I wasn't expecting from a Wikipedia article. Uh, (laughs) Though I have to, I mean, like, I agree at least that it is, it's extremely important, and for its time, it was an incredibly, like, it's a very deep game. It's one of those games that, like, has systems, but then also the developers sort of, like, probably went through the game and was like, what would be, like, this is a thing that we have, can we make it do something else too? I think that that's the thing that I most admire about this game. You're talking about in terms of literal enemy design and counter design, or you're talking about, like, we have a controller that rumbles, let's make you massage yourself with it. Like items, like, you can use the cigarettes for, like, five different things. Yeah, It's a a beautiful thing because it's actually, like, all of that. Like, enemies behave in ways that you could... With the exception of the fact that they're all basic... They have the depth perception of, like, someone who, with no eyes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, like, d- the game opens with that whole line. It's like, the genome soldiers have extremely advanced sight and hearing. But, like, their l- c- vision cone represented on the, on the radar 
is like way shorter than like a human being's eyesight mm-hmm. would be. <laughs> uh, but they, other than that, they behave in ways that you can manipulate in ways that make sense. The items all have a bunch of different uses, and the encounter designs, as you, that one's a little bit harder to quantify because it's sort of a nebulous concept of like you should just encounter things mm-hmm. but I mean still the same thing applies there's like a hundred different approaches to any given situation not any given situation there's somewhere the <laughs> approach is to hide behind a box but, but this game absolutely has both it both set forward this precedent where you'd have items that you had to start contextually thinking about not as game objects but as things that do stuff in the real world like lighting a cigarette to stop your hand trembling right uh and this game also has the what are often the beginnings of like these huge cinematic set piece moments that have defined like triple a games essentially since the creation of metal gear solid yeah and it wasn't necessarily metal gear solid that kicked off that trend but the fact that this game has these pre-rendered in-engine cutscenes and voice acting through the whole game was a big part in sort of the early 2000s merging of film and game that a lot of developers attempted to to actualize, I guess. It even managed to do voice acting really, really well out of the gate. Like, a lot better even than a lot of PS2-era games that attempted to sort of ape on the importance of what was at the time so like a, a recently new capacity for like digital discs to yeah. allow you <laughs> of course the result of this is that this game is two discs because they didn't want to compress the audio mm-hmm. which i mean is a good decision i think it's odd i think that the, the discs that disc two starts so late into the game yeah it's like not even a third of the total game is on disc two yeah. which is a little bit weird but better, I think that was a better decision than to, like, cut stuff out yeah, it all on one disc. Because if there's anything that I want in my life, it's it's David Hayter going, Metal Gear? <laughs> and not David Hayter going, like, Metal Gear? <laughs> <laughs> like, bit-crunched versions of the audio would just be really, uh... Bad. Yeah. I feel like they can, <laughs> they can make it work for the codec conversations mm-hmm. as, like, a simulation of radio static, but there's no excuse... For, like, Revolver Ocelot standing in a room with you, sounding like uh, an NES trying to, like, squeak out some noises or whatever. They could have just given you headphones the whole time and had all the characters be forced to communicate with you, like, via radio exclusively. Oh, yeah. Could have had Ocelot in their room, just, like, hold up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the codec codec is, uh, like, deus ex communication. (laughs) Because, uh... It is this insane technology. Where the game takes... I don't know if you're aware of this. The game takes place in 2005, mm-hmm. uh, which is hilarious any year after 2005, <laughs> as is anything that takes place in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, te- the codec is like the most unbelievable piece of technology that is, as far as I can tell, unless this is like a real thing that can exist... Where it's like, the Kodak is a piece of of technology that I guess is embedded in your skull and (laughs) directly vibrates the the bones of your ear. And then additionally, to speak, you don't actually have to, like, speak. You just, like... 
They completely <laughs> ignore the fact that <laughs> tongues and lips are important in speech because it like implies that you just sort of make the sounds in your throat and it transmits it. Well, there's obviously, you know, tongues and speech, very important. Don't diminish <laughs> tongues and speech at all. Uh, but there, that, I think, it was also based on, like, a really fine bit of, like, science that a lot of these near-future things like to, like, spin off into crazy, crazy pseudoscience webs. Right. It, even in the modern day, there's some interesting research that you can see that um, when people are thinking themselves privately that there's movement in, like, your, your voice box, essentially. It's really disgusting if you look up videos of it. Because <laughs> um, they, they get, you know, a tube down, and they look at the movements. Yeah, and stuff. yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you can, but thinking often will trigger that. So, hypothetically, you could make a device that interprets <laughs> that into Did, wait, maybe this, speech, maybe. You think does that, this explain why sometimes when people are listening to you speak, they, like, mouth the words that you're saying? I don't know. Have you ever seen people do this? No, that no. sounds terrifying. I've seen a lot of people do this. Who does this to you? I, well, I don't think they like. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put these people on blast, but I do know people who do that like habitually. How many that people? That is weird. I've met at least three people in my life. Who Are does. they related? No. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, do you think that that is more unbelievable than an actual Metal Gear? Right. <laughs> well, the Metal Gear. <laughs> it's a piece of technology. <laughs> It's just, the codec is such a good example of it, I think, because while I find the concept of a codec super unbelievable, mm. I also think that they use it in such a way and downplay its, like, incredibleness in such a way that it's just, like, you immediately just accept it. Mm -hmm. Like, at no point during my first playthrough of Metal Gear Solid, well, maybe during my first playthrough, I played Metal Gear Solid 2 before I played this game, uh... But the first time I was introduced to a codec, I wasn't like, this is ridiculous. Right. <laughs> like, this, I probably just said, this is a radio. Right. <laughs> is the screen actually, like, present in the game, or is that just for the player's benefit? Like, actually seeing the two characters? It's never really explained, as far as I know. Yeah. I don't believe that you're supposed to think that Snake is looking at, like... Like a wrist communicator? Right, yeah. Because that's what I thought. Well, in uh, in like, Metal Gear Solid 3, what they did was whenever you're on a codec conversation, it's not a codec anymore, I don't think, it's just a radio, because <laughs> uh, it takes place in the 60s, and the uh, the images are like, like photographs that are paper clipped to a folder of mm -hmm. the person, and you can like flip through them and it makes an audible like manila folder noise when you do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, like, I don't know if he's carrying around, like, a briefcase or if it's just supposed to represent, like, his memory of seeing their picture. Right. He's got, he's got, I'm sure he's got fucking files. I mean... Well, why? Why would you take files into <laughs> the jungle? Files are really thin and lightweight. But he doesn't carry, like, a backpack. And they're also big. Also, it would be like, really files. bad if, if you can't had... just stuff them in his pants. Also, or, you know, worst case scenario, you keep in mind that in Metal Gear Solid 3, you start the game with a suicide pill. So, like, the that mentality does not bleed into, let's take information about my support team in case I get captured so they know who to call. Yeah. He okay. probably had to study those on the plane ride or helicopter ride to his uh, mission. All right, fine. Then maybe he doesn't have actual bunch of manila envelopes, like, stuffed <laughs> in and around his belt. He's, like, crouched down behind, like, a boulder, and he's, like, leaping through. <laughs> Yeah, I do. <laughs>
What, what even started this whole spiel about the codec? I, I, I don't you just brought it up. I don't know or care, <laughs> but we we can't get off of this spiel yet because I have a bone to pick with you. Okay. But thinking a metal... directly vibrated ear bone to pick with you. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> you, Andy, apparently think that a Metal Gear couldn't exist. Well, I don't think it couldn't exist. I just asked Chad if he thought it was more unbelievable than the codex. <laughs> There's definitely an argument you made that it couldn't exist because. The same thing that all giant things in media do. It just totally ignores the square cube law. I don't know what that Not being means. like, I'm such not a, like a physics stickler uh, <laughs> in, in games and movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, yes, technically speaking, the Metal Gear would collapse under its own weight. Uh, I think. Like, I don't know like the exact numbers, nor would I be able to do the math if I did know them. <laughs> but that is a thing. Like, somebody pointed out that, like, the the uh, Jaegers in Pacific Rim would, like, sink into the ocean floor <laughs> so deep that they would not be able to move anymore. Like, it would just, like, <laughs> the instant that they were put on the ocean floor, they would just, like, drop to their shoulders because they would be so heavy. Yeah, the ocean floor is also very not, like, rocker. Right, yeah, mostly, like, like, mud. Yeah, it's, like, and thick dirt. feces and death. <laughs> There's also feces there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can't ignore the feces. <laughs> Anyway, so that's why Metal Gear can't exist. Uh, <laughs> Google the square cube law. Right? Is that it? On yeah, the square time. cube law. I'll just put I'll put the Wikipedia link in the uh, in the episode description. Uh, either way, though, I think what actually started this whole conversation uh, was the fact that everything in this game has like multiple functions and is. Uh, and their attention to detail on things is insane. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think that they did it to such a degree that, like, when there was an example of a time that they didn't do that, it really stood out. Yeah. Because, like, for example, the handkerchief later on in the game, I kept trying to, like, figure out stuff to do with it. Because, like, you get it right before the part where you get the cold. So I kept thinking they were linked, you know, handkerchief and having a cold. So I was like, I'll equip the handkerchief so that when Snake coughs, he'll cough into the handkerchief. And, and then we'll maybe, alert the guy. And then maybe, yeah, it'll muffle it, and then maybe I can give it to somebody else to get them sick. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, you know, like, I kept thinking of, like, weird things like that. And it's just like, nope, it just makes the wolves not attack you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the handkerchief, I think, is a particularly egregious example uh, because... It is, like, it's an everyday object that has many uses. <laughs> like, I know lots of people who carry a handkerchief just because it's super useful to have one around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Snake is like, nope, just for wolves. Yeah. <laughs> and none of the people I know have ever been attacked by wolves, so it probably does that, too. <laughs> uh yeah, or I kept thinking, like, maybe, like, I'd get hurt, or Meryl would get hurt, and I could, like, you know, patch them up with the handkerchief or something. Yeah. No. That is, that does become a thing in Metal Gear Solid 3 in the most egregious, like, weird cure menu thing, but uh, not not in this game. Yeah. But everything else, though, uh, and I mean, they take it to a, an even greater extent in Metal Gear Solid 2, the way better... Metal Gear game. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they had time and technology and money and so many other cool things that this game only kind of had. Yeah, yeah. Th- this game does suffer a little bit from just uh, not having the freedoms that MGS Two did. Yeah. Um, but man, do I love it anyway! It's I, I I so regret 
not just stumbling upon this game as like a ten year old. I was not a PlayStation household. I didn't oh, have yeah. I didn't have the, this potential experience. But God, so many like ten year old mind blowing things contained within the initial Metal Gear Solid. I would have been making decoy octopus jokes of my own to other <laughs> children who probably also would not have gotten them. Yeah. Or been proud. The uh Actually, yeah, what is it? Because you, you just played Metal Gear Solid 1 for the first time uh, a couple years ago? Yeah, yeah. A couple years ago, I had not touched any Metal Gear game and just resolved myself that I was going to beat all of the Metal Gear Solid series in a summer. Mm-hmm. And I did, and it was cool. It was really cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, and made me appreciate more and more the public perception of Kojima as uh, like a literal madman and crazy person. Yeah. I remember just spending maybe like 40 minutes just dumbfounded in my apartment as I was listening to this PlayStation 1 game like harp on about like the importance of environmental conservation while like pictures of FMV deer were on screen (laughs) after I like stopped a nuclear war and blew up a mech it was yeah the uh oh man they so there's so much in that statement that I do want to <laughs> talk about uh but during this like brief history section you just played the game Andy for the first time right over this last week yeah and I guess I had a much different experience than JJ because I felt like all the expectation and like hype that this game has around it and you said the wikipedia page says (laughs) it's one of the greatest games of all time and one of the most important games ever made and i knew it that way by reputation and i think that really like negatively affected my opinion of this game because like i remember starting it out and it just feeling like super quaint and like not much was going on and it didn't look very good and it controlled kind of sloppy and i was like (laughs) Is this is Metal Gear? <laughs> what about that opening credits sequence, Andy? What about that that lovely like no just they just drop you in to your introductory tutorial section while the credits roll on screen? That that I think like once again at the time that was probably cool, but that feels so normal now. It does. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Also, as a as a, thing, I don't mean to shit on the game. I appreciate a lot about it, but and it got better for me as it went along. But like, it really underwhelmed me at first, and I found myself shocked at how much I was not enjoying it. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I actually uh, sort of fall into the same boat. Uh, I've I think I I would it's safe to say that I have more of an appreciation for the game uh, generally than Andy does, but. Uh, I played this game originally right after I had finished Metal Gear Solid 2 for, like, the third time. Uh, So I want to say, like, 2004 or 5 in that area, I went back and played the PlayStation 1 version of this game. And since I've played the PS1 version twice and the Twin Snakes two or three times, something in that area. Uh, And, yeah, going back to this game... Feels pretty weird, uh, I think. Like, I, I don't think that it holds up to age in the way that a much simpler game would. But this game's complexity leads it to be bound to, like, the kind of bizarre way they chose to, to structure both the controls and the way that the game plays in order to get around 
technical limitations, time limitations, anything that nowadays still gimps a, a game from like living up to its full potential. I think that were present in this game and are the kind of things that just get way worse with time than things like graphics do. Did they copyright the whole, like, holding in the triggers to, to switch through your menu slider thing? I, I don't know, but I've definitely never seen it in another game. I know. Why is that the case? I love that little thing. In, in Metal Gear Solid and in all the sequels since, mm-hmm. it's so fun for me to do this little auto-pause situation. It's a way to break up the action in all these difficult circumstances when switching through all of your items. Yeah. So time to think. Well, I think it was a... I th- it's a good choice. Actually, I like it a lot, and uh, as with many things, I think its implementation later in the series is a little bit better. Yeah. Um, but the specifically the fact that in later games you can just, like, tap L2 and R2 to switch, or to, like, unequip the item and re-equip it, um, which makes things like... Uh, in this... which. <laughs> Weirdly, in Metal Gear Solid 2, you have first-person aim at any time, uh, whereas in this game you don't, and it's locked to certain weapons, so the sniper rifle's the uh, stinger. Um, And being able to unequip with one button would be so much better in this game than in the other games, but the other games are the ones where it was implemented. But other than that, I would say that I I, I like that inventory. It, It keeps you out of, like, true menus, and gives you access to everything sort of at once. It's nice. It's almost like a cinematic menu in a way, if that's an interesting way that I can think to describe it. Like, it's an interesting way to describe <laughs> it. I don't know that I understand. Like, because if you go through it in a traditional menu experience in other games that existed at the time, and still tons of games later, like think to Breath of the Wild for a recent example, normally when you open a menu... They're trying to optimize everything so much for condensing the information, partially because modern games and even a lot of older games, a lot of have throw in so many systems and throw many so many items that you need that extra screen space screen space to get things done. Right. So because they somewhat limited the item density here in Metal Gear Solid, instead of like literally changing everything that you were looking about and throwing you into this like abstraction of what was going on, something that I think I didn't really like, for example, about the cure menu right. in Metal Gear Solid 3, they give you this weird half menu that takes up, it's literally down in a corner away from the screen, everything else is maintained, and it looks sort of in the, sta- in the same strange futuristic style of like, the codec and a lot of the other, like, actually within narrative does exist systems of the game. Yeah. So it reminds me a lot of the HUD in Metroid Prime in that sense, where you have a HUD that, even though it doesn't really make any sense for why it would exist, has like enough of like a vague narrative justification that you don't think about it and feels like a real thing that's going on instead of what it actually is, which is just a menu screen for you to make the game easier. Right. Yeah. This is kind of the same argument that we had for the... Uh the existence of certain, like, menu screens in, in Assassin's Creed, where that game uh, sort of backpedaled on it because they had something that in-universe makes sense but hurts your immersion in the game itself because it's of a different part of the game than you typically are even in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really smart for them to, like, look at their screen space, like, real estate, right. and say, like... The edges of a frame are usually not important, so we can, like, slap a little... Yeah. weapon menu right there and not have to 
completely change the viewpoint of the player. Yeah. I also really like the fact that it bends yeah. around the corners mm-hmm. so that you select yeah, like the selections in the vertex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that way you don't end up with... Because, yeah, there's there so many bad ways yeah. to do a menu, and I this is wish, definitely not I almost wish it didn't even pause the game. Like, I feel like they could have implemented it that way, because it's usually quick enough to cycle through them yeah. that you could just do it on the fly. I feel like... Uh, I feel like that actually would have worked in this game. In later games, maybe, maybe not, not as in much. Boss fights, right? You probably wouldn't be able to do it there, but yeah. I know in, in later games in the series, like Metal Gear Two, one of the things that I, d- I don't particularly like about it is like there are just so many items <laughs> that you end up with like. You'll be scrolling, you'll be like, I need to get to, like, the Pentasmin pill. And you have to scroll through, like, five cardboard boxes that, are just, <laughs> that all have their own spot on the menu. <laughs> yeah, and it certainly, like, leaps and bounds better than what was going on at the time. Like, even if, like, you look at this game's, like, contemporaries, like Ocarina of Time or, like, Final Fantasy VII, uh... Those menus are, like, awful. <laughs> like, yeah, they sure are. Just huge messes. <laughs> yeah, of, like, icons of things you don't even have Yeah, like, the yet. Ocarina of Time menu is just terrible. This is why I argue that the, the 3DS release of that game is, like, the quintessential version of it. Does anyone argue back with you? <laughs> yeah, now that you think about it, no. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's just the better version. Yeah. This is a weird case of an early 3D game being mechanically not messy while still being mechanically all over the place and certainly (laughs) narratively all over the place. Like, it has focus in every way that isn't its, like, specific mechanical conceits at every moment. Everything that you're doing, even if they're just, like, one-off mechanics that they're throwing for fun and diversity, Mm -hmm. none of it felt to me when going through the game like it was some unrefined bullshit thing <laughs> like the Bayonetta motorcycle section. Yeah. I mean, this game gets away with... Uh, I don't say that that implies some negativity that I don't think I, I actually mean here. Uh, this game does a really good job of taking things that would be like a difference in kind in a different game and sort of mapping it to the game in a way that makes sense. So like... Your biggest, like, the the things that most break the mold of the rest of the game are things like resisting the torture, which is just, like, mashing a button, mm-hmm. or the a few weapons where you actually have to use first-person aiming, which is something that most people who have played games are used to by now. Yeah. So, it does a good, it has a good process, I guess, yeah. for, for making the game fresh and new, but not totally... Like giving you a different control set, Andy. Yeah. How did some of those like completely maddening off the wall scenes, like torture resistance through button presses in 1998, end up landing with you when you played it now? Um, some of the stuff, like the crazier stuff, I already knew about. Like I already knew about the whole Psycho Mantis boss fight, but like for the, like the torture resistance scene felt really effective but they made like the decision that like you can't continue after that and you have to replay from your last save if you fail right so i failed and was like well i don't want to do that again <laughs> like, i have to watch that whole cut scene and so i just submitted to the torture the second time so like i feel like great concept somewhat clunky execution 
But at the time, I know that wouldn't have bothered me at all, and I probably would have done it over and over again until I got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I, that's, I think, a valid thing, but also I believe, and I might be wrong on this, that torture is generally considered like a difficult thing to resist. <laughs> yeah, so definitely. They, it's but possible like, that they chose it to was, do that specifically to it was already physically hard to do though yeah like they did not like because like i've played games my whole life and i've done plenty of quick time events like i've played pokemon stadium with like the mini game where you have to mash the <laughs> the a and b buttons to charge up the thing oh like, yeah Pikachu's and the Voltorbs. Voltorbs. Mm-hmm. played tons of that kind of crap but i couldn't do this yeah like i'm sitting there just like putting the controller on the table and like mashing the circle button <laughs> if you like to re- re- like me to regale you with the story of how i resisted torture the first time so yeah i just gave up <laughs> i took a, a pen and put the controller on the table and just like ran the pen over the button know, over and over and again because mm-hmm. I read somewhere that that works and it did uh, so that's how I resisted torture the time that I, I did so, yeah, I think it was already gated by your physical ability to push the button <laughs> plenty well enough that they should have just let you try it over again immediately I see I'm glad to know that I am now the real man of the podcast. Who just mashed with your thumb? Yeah, who can just resist torture without even doing any silly bullshit to the controller. (laughs) Just holding it in my goddamn hands like a controller and pressing the button fast enough to beat it. I couldn't do it. You're you're more machine than man, JJ. (laughs) Thank you. I think I had a turbo button on a GameCube controller that I may have used... Uh, Is this like the one thing. time when turbo buttons existed that they, they, they were useful? Because <laughs> like turbo buttons always existed, well at least predominantly existed, back in like the PS2 era, when games generally, at least pre-RE4, didn't have like tons of quick time events, and certainly not tons of like contextual press a button a million times quick time events. Uh, I had an N64 controller, I had SNES controllers that had turbo buttons on them. Mm-hmm. But I think the turbo button's secret actual use is to flag for you that the third party controller that you're buying is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily know. I, they're still useful for that reason. Uh, Probably useful for, like, Mario Party. <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to cheat. Your fr- like, you have your friends over and you're like, here you go, here's my... You can have the first party controller. You slide the turbo knob over. <laughs> you're ready to lose, motherfucker. <laughs> knob? You had, like, twist knobs? I had a, an N64 controller that had a turbo button that had variable speeds. Wow. Yeah. It had, like, a little little switch that would go into That's three sliding. positions. Yeah. Oh, oh. I was thinking it was like a... Like a big, like, yeah. uh, volume knob or mm-hmm. something. Like, above the joystick, you just had this, like, three times the radius of the joystick. <laughs> <laughs> big old controller. Something you could have used to, like, move remote-controlled cars. Right. Which is, by the way... The worst way to control a remote-controlled car? Yeah. Why is why did that become the dominant method to control a remote-controlled car? Because it looks like a steering wheel. Yeah, because it's gimmicky, and, like, when someone looks at it, they think it seems like a good idea. <laughs> uh, In reality, it is not. Mm-hmm. To get back uh, to... Turbo buttons. No, uh, <laughs> uh, to the game at hand. Uh, the one thing that you did mention, uh, 
JJ. My name's my name's JJ. I'm trying to think. The thing that actually Andy's when we mentioned it. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> the Sega Mantis fight uh, obviously had a pretty huge impact on me when I was a kid, uh, given my like AOL instant messenger screen name, including the word Psycho Mantis in it. Uh, I believe I went as Psycho Mantis for Halloween uh, in the sixth grade. <laughs> Whoa! Nice. How many people just thought you were a terrorist? <laughs> well, a lot of people thought that I was just, like, a weird kid wearing a lot of belts across his chest. Because <laughs> that's what I was. And the gas mask. That's and a pretty the gas important mask. piece. It is. Uh, so, I don't know. Probably all of them. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that is, like... Because I, I think that the, the, the Psycho Mantis fight most resembles what I really liked about Metal Gear Solid 2 in the, like, kind of wacky, out-of-the-box way that they structured that boss fight. Uh, and it stands out as, like, one of two boss fights in this game that I actually enjoy playing. So, <laughs> that's, uh... But that, that like, Kojima element that we've talked about on, like, the PT episode or whatever mm-hmm. is something that I, I really think not only did I enjoy it when I played this game, I think does really hold up. Like, I think that kind of thing is still just just crazy enough to work. His fuckery is timeless. Yeah, absolutely. Most of it, anyway. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's one of the things that, like, got my expectations a little too high, is that like, that was what how I thought of this game. It's like, I knew that stuff. Right. The weird Kojima stuff. And so, like, the game doesn't have a lot of that in the first chunk. doesn't really have a lot of that generally. Well, it gets more and more, like... Bizarre. Bizarre as it goes. And there's more just, like, weird boss fights and stuff. Like, at the beginning, it's, like, almost like it's a different game. Right. And it kind of, like, develops the weirdness as it goes. The contrast, I think, is really important. Certainly it's one of the things that makes it stand out. Like, people think of Metal Gear Solid now as a like a quirky series uh often because when you look back things like the psychomantis fight get like accented really they they just seem so much louder in retrospect but the thing that i think that i think serves to make a lot of this stuff so just inexplicable is that it's it's not alongside things that are weird for weirdness sake like this is not a katamari situation <laughs> where you're looking at someone at, an, at a game with a narrative that's attempting to take itself like relatively seriously as just like a straightforward like 80s movie action plot but has all this other bullshit like you know <laughs> references to anime and to cyborg yeah. love dramas and whatever it is like a weird mashup between like an 80s like american action film and like weird like sci-fi japanese influenced like <laughs> sections i i think that uh, the game has i guess has trappings of an 80s action movie the the game shies away from giving solid snake like quippy one-liners in later entries in the series, mm-hmm. um, where they are totally present in this game. I think the big difference is that, unlike the the campy 80s movies that we're sort of comparing it to here, this game has, like, a level of subtext to it, mm-hmm. uh, and actually has, like, a point that it wants to make. The, the villains are over-the-top and a little bit supernatural, and 
do you want to take over the world? <laughs> but the game itself is, is like about nuclear war to the point where while this crazy shit is going on, you're not interacting with it at all until the very end. And for the most part, you're just talking to people about nuclear deterrent and the political relationships between superpowers in the world and all of this stuff. And, and Snake is very invested in it. And the Colonel is very invested in it. And uh, it, it is like the thing that actually drives their character stories forward. Um, but the then t- also you have to wonder if love can bloom on a battlefield. <laughs> and it gets like into that like personal level as well. And it's, I think, a little bit more hit or miss on that. Yeah, it's, I feel like it gets the balance mostly right. Like, even though, like, there's, like, these fantastical elements, like, each of the bosses is humanized before they die, and, like, everything's kind of, like, contextualized in, like, a realistic or serious enough way that it never feels like it gets too goofy. Yeah. Later iterations on the series, partially because I think uh, advances in graphical technology allowed you to, to... Rather than putting sharper and sharper relief, the realistic elements from the fantastical elements, those things in the future would start to feel weirder and a little bit more out of place. I remember going through Metal Gear Solid 4 and thinking that, like, trying to, like, humanize and talk about the horrors of war from, you know, these child soldiers when the thing that I'm having the conversation about is, like, a techno-future cyber 16-year-old with an octopus head (laughs) and, like, camouflage abilities. Like, it... Uh, as things got further and further progressed, it, that those things started to contrast and put, push against each other more. But for now, it's just enough in like the the near future that you can still that they had the freedom of sci-fi elements and the realism of a grounded setting. It's like the Jaws effect, where like the limitations <laughs> made it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not only that, but like I think. Going forward, they sort of, they really honed in on the things that were successful about Metal Gear Solid 1, which are, like, choosing your own way through an area in a stealth combat game and the Psycho Madness boss fight. (laughs) And they just expanded that into the Metal Gear Solid series going forward. Yeah, it's in the, specifically about, I don't think we've, like, specifically mentioned this, but, like, the thing about the Psycho Manus boss fight is that it takes advantage of the medium in interesting ways. Right. And that's what's so great about it. It's like he reads the information from your memory card and he forces you to like put the controller in slot two to beat him. Which even like to this day, like if any other franchise has done something <laughs> like that, like I don't not that I know of anyway. And like that kind of stuff is just really cool and it's the kind of thing I'd like to see more of. In games, it's harder to do now, right? But and there's also there's a level of it because you can see games that sort of like reward you for having other games by the same developer. Like I've seen that happen before. It'll be like, oh, if you have a save from this game, like you'll start this game with a thousand bucks or whatever. Mm. Uh, but those are things that are like kind of explicitly used to get you to purchase other games Mm -hmm. for something knowing anything about the fact that he reads konami game information from your memory card before going into that ruins it immediately 
And so it's like something that cannot be used for advertising purposes. <laughs> right. It's literally just there to fuck with you, and that's like super. Oh good. yeah, and it, it fake changes the channel on you. Yeah, the hideo. <laughs> yeah. So goofy. I even like waits and then puts it smaller in the corner. Yeah. Like I had a TV that did exactly that with the word video that I played Metal Gear Solid One on for the first time. So it actually did get me. Whereas like in the HD era, that's not. Yeah. Like you know, like, even kids now don't up even, a box. even get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what they should do is anytime they re-release this, make it so that it cuts out in a little box that says like "Input Not Detected" comes <laughs> right. up. Like that's what you need. But yeah, it's hard to do that kind of stuff now because every, not everything's as uniform. Like controllers are wireless. Yeah. Like it was um, even complicated to yeah. get it to work on the PS3. Yeah. Because you yeah, have to no go to the menu. There's no memory cards anymore, etc. Yeah. Like you can't count that everybody's going to have the same stuff. Yeah. So now everybody's memory is completely clean. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he says. If you don't have, I guessed that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking uh, that after <laughs> uh, a break, we should come back and discuss the mechanics, because that's one thing that, Andy, you brought up, specifically felt clunky to you, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you have opposing thoughts to that, <laughs> and I'm actually somewhat in the middle. All right. So let's uh, take, take a break. Okay. Perfect. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, You're welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> so now the J has gone. So when we left uh, left off, so we're gonna talk about the mechanics uh, because Andy implied that he didn't think they particularly held up. I'm kind of almost in the same boat with that. So let's start with the positive Mm -hmm. uh, and say I think that the base stealth mechanics of this game are still just as, like, relevant now as they were then. And I think probably ended up influencing a lot of how stealth games were made from this point forward. I don't have the same history and pedigree of stealth games in general. I've played every Metal Gear game... And I, of course, have experienced stealth in a lot of the ways that stealth has been in the future forced into other, like, third or first person generalized action games. Your Assassin's Creed's, your Dishonored's, your things like that. (laughs) Zelda's. Yes, I guess now you're Zelda's. Uh, Even in Wind Waker, uh, Link mm -hmm. could push himself against a wall like Solid Snake. And he could put himself in a barrel. Oh, yeah. Just like a uh, cardboard box. Yeah, like a cardboard barrel. Yeah, one of those. Yeah. But I would not call myself like a stealth game aficionado. I've never played Thief. I've never had a particular interest to. And the things that draw me to this series aren't even necessarily the stealth action. It's a lot of the things that are ancillary and around that. Like, I really do like not just the Kojima bullshit, but the mechanical bullshit that you always have to go to. I like the way that all the systems interact together. So... I enjoy going through all of the systems that, that you're discussing here. I really like the way that the camera moves in particular. Uh, I don't know if that's been done before. I can't imagine they had many opportunities to do so pre-3D. But 
the feeling that you get backing against the wall and like peering out from the side looking for your genome soldier in their cool little like white vest neck thing right. walking around for you. It's, it's, it's a kind of tension that I really associate with this series and I think has come to define a lot of what good stealth became in the future. Yeah. I think that this game, while obviously did not like invent stealth, uh, definitely made it like way more accessible to the general public. Uh, which is a thing that previous stealth games just are not. Like, I did play the original Thief. Um, it wasn't until years and years after. I think I actually played it about six months before the Thief 3, like the remake of Thief, came out. Mm -hmm. And I played Thief because a lot of people in the industry that I pay attention to and respect really like Thief. And that is the moment that I realized that I'm my own person. <laughs> and the fact that someone that I like likes something does not in any way mean that I'm going to be able to grasp and enjoy it in the same way. Uh, I'm kind of the same with the original Deus Ex. Games that are really good and that I do respect, but it's like I am not the kind of person who can enjoy it in that way. Yeah, completely with you on the Deus Ex boat. I've tried to play that three or four times now, and it, it always still just feels like something that has a complexity level and is in a certain, like, zone that I just completely missed out on in my life. Mm -hmm. It's not like something like Doom where the mechanics are simple enough that I can go back to it even though I'm not really part of that space anymore and still have fun with all the clicking and the madness. Things like Deus Ex you go back to and I'm just like, whoa, what are all of these norms that I don't understand <laughs> yeah. about interacting with this keyboard? And in a lot of ways, Metal Gear both before this game and now, sort of, a lot of created their own weird little nest of norms. Like, it's going to be strange going back to this game and having the, the way that you shoot and the differences between which button is cancel and accept against all industry <laughs> oh, standards. That, that really threw me through a loop. Yeah. That is, I believe the way that the PlayStation controller was actually designed. Yep. Yeah, it they makes wanted sense. the O like, button. Once you explained it to me, like, X means cancel, I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> but nobody else even mm -hmm. thought of that. Like, all of the... <laughs> like, every PlayStation developer was like, yeah, yeah X, is, X is yes. Eventually it became standard, yeah, that X was the action button. It's because it of was... the resting place of your thumb. It's mm -hmm. always... Because the way the angle that it rests is way closer to the X button than the O button, so they want it to be the easiest to hit. I really... The problems that I had with that were highly mitigated, because I literally played every Metal Gear Solid game at the same time straight through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it threw me off, obviously, more going back to it now, but... It was only like half, after I got halfway through Metal Gear Solid 1, I never had that problem again because for four months I just reversed my brain. Yeah, yeah it kept like bothering me like all the way through. <laughs> uh, but that particular control aside, I think everything else uh, is the, was brought back and, and brought back for a pretty good reason, I would say. The improvements in Metal Gear Solid 2, even on the controls, are fairly minor. It's... Things like, well, okay, being able to go into first-person mode, not minor at all. We're pretty <laughs> huge, actually. Um, but things like, you can now, like, pop off a shot after you lean out from behind a wall. Like, things like that, just sort of, like, somewhere between quality of life and just, like, additional, like, sl small tactical options. Uh, this game really laid the, the groundwork for that. And somebody who cannot play Thief 
absolutely could play Metal Gear Solid. Oh, yeah. There's lots of tiny ways that the game made it easier, even than a lot of later stealth games. Uh, I really, really love the alert phase, as that, and that is an innovation, especially the way that the alert phase removes the biggest crutch that you have mechanically in the game, your radar. It's like I, I spent more time watching that radar off and going through stealth action segments than I did even looking at like the legitimately cool cinematic sequences that you're trying to move through sometimes. Yep. Uh, so having so having that just like blink out of existence when you mess up and now feeling like you're on your own in like grounded space. It almost reminds me of going into a random encounter in a Final Fantasy game in a weird way, where you go from this like abstracted view because you're thinking really high and mighty about getting through this space and all these problems, and now you zoom in really quickly to deal with like a specific action problem. Right. Yeah. And it not being a straight fail safe is great for people who have to do are new to stealth action games. Uh, while you are punished highly for taking bullets in this game, you I can generally escape, particularly if you're smart with your tools, and the tools that they give you are super versatile, like we discussed in the first half, so that's yeah. very helpful with escaping like that. It's I Just the alert phase is just so mind-blocking, and, I, and I, I think that's part of why the little exclamation point and the sound that plays with it has just become so emblematic in game culture forever. Yeah. I, I, I have to imagine that Andy and I were both during that whole conversation, thinking about the uh, the bathroom of death, uh, right down <laughs> right down the hallway from the uh, the Psychomantis fight. There are two restrooms. There's the one that you meet Marilyn, and then there's the men's restroom. And while I was watching Andy play through this game, uh, he set off an alarm, mm-hmm. and then. <laughs> How many people did you kill? I it seemed like an unlimited string of people <laughs> just kept coming into the bathroom, and they would like, I'd I'd break a guy's neck and then go hide in the stall, and then another guy would come in, I'd break his neck, yeah. go hide in the stall, well, the and then another thing. guy would come. It's like it kept happening at like this like very specific interval, like. Another guy wouldn't show up till the first guy was dead, and then another guy just kept coming. <laughs> and it was like he would wait. The alarm would go off, and then it would go into eva- eva- the evasion mode. And then once evasion mode ran out, the guy who had just run into the bathroom would oh, just yeah. go take a leak. <laughs> yeah, he would run in, and then the thing would run out because I was hiding, and he didn't come look in the stall. And then after, yeah, it went back to normal. He would just go take a piss. <laughs> It was just this, like, hysterical <laughs> string of people coming in and him mm. killing them. But um, my experience with, like, the the radar was that I paid attention to it a lot as well. But then, like, once a guard came nearby, my attention shifted to that guy. Mm. So that when, if I messed up, I was already not paying attention to the radar. It actually took me a while to realize the radar got jammed when you got caught. Because, like, I would shift my attention. So I, think I didn't really quite have that effect. I, I, I think that that is more or less actually how they want the game to play. Uh-huh. The radar seems there as a, I don't know, as like a concession because of the limited graphical possibilities also, of the PS1. The, the fact that the camera's so zoomed in. Yeah. Like, I can't believe I hadn't brought that up yet because that's one of my least favorite things about the game. It's how limited, I, like, my view always felt. Yeah, because you have that top-down in a lot of areas, but then once you go into uh, any sort of enclosed space, it sort of takes this, like, 
side view where you're running around things, and it's it's pretty static and difficult to uh, like actually push to view around things. You have to push yourself against walls in order to see down long sight lines. Yeah. That's also why they gave the guards such short sight lines, because if people were just seeing you out of nowhere, it would be really irritating. Mm-hmm. Like, like a, a gun corner, camera. Yeah. Turning a corner and just getting, like, shot a couple times, like, when you had no way of, like, knowing there was something there is super annoying. Yeah. And that's why they needed the Solitarn radar, is, is that individual concession. And that was the reason that I became so reliant on it. Mm-hmm. It was because uh, I was looking at vision cones all the time. Right. Yeah. So I could do all this, you know, awesome bullshit, like putting C4 on the backs of guards. Right. <laughs> That's a classic, too. Yeah. Uh, can you... No, I'm crazy. I was thinking I was thinking that you could attach claymores to people in later games, but I don't think that you can. I think they always go straight to the ground. You can probably do it in 5, because you can do, like, anything in 5. Yeah, 5 is no limits. Yeah. Hmm. Uh... <laughs> I'd say I have to mostly agree, though, because I didn't really chime in at all, that I think the core mechanics of this game are solid, no pun intended. Metal Gear, so... Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a lot of like the, like the nitty-gritty of how it's actually controlled that I don't like, particularly. Like, I mentioned, like the camera, I think, makes it really hard to see, um, and I, I hate how... I would be running around and accidentally walk up against a wall and, like, press against it when I'm trying to run away from something. That got me killed in a couple of boss fights. And, like, I I tried both digital and analog control, and, like, both of them felt a little awkward to control, but, like, that's just kind of typical of older games. Yeah. I think... uh... It's a lot of little things. Yeah, that was a that was an issue that I had a lot in uh, Metal Gear Solid Three, actually, because I would always end up running into trees and like stealth slapping myself against the tree for some reason. Stealth slapping. Yeah, it's like even if you hit like the clip the corner, it seemed like in the smallest way you would like press against it. Unless there was a ration on that ledge. Oh yeah. <laughs> And a pit of lava on the other side. <laughs> Did you in the boiler room? Or the it's not really boiler room. The melting room. <laughs> the room yeah. with lava. The blast furnace. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> in the blast furnace, there's a uh, right outside the last door before you leave. There's a, a ration on a ledge. It's like underneath one of the bridges. Mm-hmm. Like you had to go down underneath. Were you able to get that ration? Yeah. How did you? Do- we tried for like a hour. And kept dying. I don't, I don't, it was literally probably 15 minutes of me trying to get it. Because, like, it's it's on a little sliver, so you have to, like, sidle to it. Yeah. But, like, I could not get him to, like, sidle on that wall. Like, at all. I would, like, walk up to the edge and try and press against it. And, and he would like, just fall. <laughs> like, I could not get it. So this was... This and, was... like, I tried, like, super... Super lightly, like I tried walking against like the wall and then like turning the corner, couldn't get that to work. Yeah. I tried like crawling over to like the exact <laughs> right position, standing up and like shimmying into the spot every time, right into the lava. Like it seemed impossible to get. It's been long enough that I've been to that area that I don't remember if I knew it was there or successfully got it. 
but this was so uneventful to me that I don't even have a recollection of having trouble. I just remember lo- knowing where the item was, and I remember getting it because you get items in video games. Right. But no, this I I think I did this automatically in two seconds, and I forgot. <laughs> how. Yeah, because it was when I, I I noticed it when I brought the key back to that room to get it to change to the last key. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm waiting for it to change. I'm gonna get that ration because I need him for the boss. Then I know it's coming. <laughs> and uh, just kept dying. I'm like, I'm going to get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nope. It broke me. And you were right, because there is pretty much always a boss coming, particularly yes. in the second disc. Yeah, this is what I was going to... The mechanics, I think, start to fall down a bit when they apply them to these boss fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how you feel about it. I know that you were generally positive on most things in this game. Yeah. But throughout the entire series... Uh, up in, I've never played four, so up until three, when I actually did think that they were cool, uh, I hate all the bo- every boss. There are like two bosses in this game that I think are good-ish. What, like Vulcan? It's got to be somewhere on that. Vul- Vulcan and and Mantis. Mantis is my favorite. Vulcan is my second favorite, and then everything else is uh, e- the ranges between annoying to like sleep-inducingly yeah. terrible. <laughs> I'm in the same boat. Um, a lot, a lot of the bosses are negatively affected by the camera. Like Revolver Ocelot, I remember being super annoying because you could never see him. You were also playing Ocelot, like, super safe. True, that was, like, the first boss. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure if I played it again, it wouldn't be so bad. But, uh, yeah, I hated that I could never see him because I couldn't go to the middle of the room or it would explode. Right. Um, so that was annoying. Um, and a lot of them just take forever. Either, like, the bosses have way too much health or your weapons don't do enough damage to them. Because, like, you die to any of the bosses, it is like an audible ugh comes out of your mouth, even <laughs> if you're, like, by yourself. Because you're like, oh my god, that took, like, 15 minutes. And now I have to do it all over again. I have... Like, Cyborg Ninja, like, I had tr- trouble with that fight. Like, my second try, I did, like, pretty well. Like, once I realized I had to punch him to death. Yeah, I think that it's actually overstating it to say that you had trouble with that boss. I think that you did fine on that boss, but he has a bullshit explosion. Yeah, and then you you get him all the way down, and then he just starts exploding. (laughs) (laughs) And then, like, you know, without any warning. Yeah, almost instantaneously. And it did happen to be he had, like, almost no health. Uh, and I forgot that he exploded. <laughs> I would have warned him. And yeah, he punched him into the last into the last phase, and he exploded and yeah, killed like, him. And he had to redo the whole fight. Yep, yeah, that one and the fight with the hind, the helicopter. Like, Even if you do well on that, it yeah. takes like twenty minutes. Yeah, it's oh my god, and it's really hard not to just like get clipped by some stray bullets and stuff. Like it's a lot of little things. Like yeah, they just take forever. And noticing you guys have not mentioned the sniper wolf fight. Just one of my highlights. Uh, uh, that's actually that's a good point. The sniper wolf fight is fine. Yeah, I think the sniper wolf fight conversely really a is a little bit easy, like maybe just a smidge too easy. Yeah, because she really only like gets a guaranteed hit off on you when she like will start running and be like, "Ha, just kidding, gotcha," and like turns <laughs> and just shoots immediately. Yeah, most of the time she gives you a good like ten second yeah. leeway to aim and shoot. Yeah, it's a lot different than the other fights. It's just like a. I'm with you on the troubles of length in the hind fight and length in the cyborg ninja fight. For some reason, specifically the cyborg ninja fight really does not stick in my memory very much. I I, I think it's because I, I, I 
didn't really engage with it. I didn't find it enjoyable enough for it to make a long-term experience, or I would, or that or maybe I just didn't like uh, what is otaku face enough that I scrub <laughs> memories of him. Hal Emmerich. That's him. Yeah, Emmerich. Otakon. Yeah. Uh, examples of like other moments. How did you guys feel about like the climactic punching on top of Rex finale? Mm. Uh, you didn't get there. I didn't actually beat Rex. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is fair, I think. <laughs> uh, I remember thinking when I played it the first time as one of like the strongest memories of the game, where I was like, "This oh, so good." Uh, thinking about it in retrospect and then playing it other times, I th- just like the sword fight at the end of uh, Metal Gear Solid Two better enough that I'm like now more lukewarm on punching liquid. You can't See, compare everything to Metal Gear Solid 2's improvements. Because they are improvements. Um, but it's because it's the second game on a new console. I'm saying it influenced my opinion. I hope it did. But it's good. I think it's yeah. a fine thing to as, do. As somebody who didn't actually get to it because I ran out of time and it was real hard. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I think it really works on, like, a narrative level and a thematic yeah. level that they just, like, have a fist fight at the end. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they're both clones of the same guy. But I think, like, the game is not designed for hand-to-hand combat. I agree. You have, like, a three-hit combo. <laughs> punch, punch, kick, or whatever. That's exactly And, like, it, yeah. that is not very fun, but, like, I think it works in this game. I'm stunned by how, it work, how well it works in that fight. It's a three-hit combo, plus a lot of, like, fine control over your motion, plus the ability to duck under kicks. Right. Like, that's all it takes. And it turned that final climactic fight into me, particularly back... Uh, the first time I played it, and less so today, where I know I can remember some of the strategies that I used the first time, into this, like, huge, super difficult, like, actual bare-knuckle brawl where I spent, like, an hour and a half just, like... It was like a Dark Souls fight. Like, I was just sitting there, like, desperately, just pushing my head against the wall, trying to beat this. Pushing it against the wall? Yes! It wasn't a bash. I'm just imagining, like, an animated version of that, where you, like, (laughs) press your head against the wall until it pops. Right! I had to just keep (laughs) applying force. No stops, no breaks. I just sat there and just kept restarting This is actually something I don't remember. When you die in that fight, it just puts you back at the beginning of that fight, right? I don't remember. How do you not remember if you did it a bunch of times? I uh, maybe my mind was in such a focus. Yeah. He would remember if he had to fight Rex, fight Rex again. All three oh, phases. No, you don't fight Rex. It's good. Yeah. Okay. If that's what you, that, I thought you meant like a cutscene or something. No. But uh, it, I guarantee you, it starts with a cutscene. <laughs> it's Metal Gear. <laughs> yeah. It, it it felt like you were going through a fighting game in that sequence, despite how incredibly simplistic the mechanics were. And I guess. Because of the the changing behaviors in Liquid as he goes through his different phases, and the fact that they only had to have enough mechanics to have one good fight, right? Yeah, it, it really set that up. That's really that's a good way of putting it. One good fight because the Cyborg Ninja fight was not that fight. <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope, not at all. But yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was definitely good. It's definitely really memorable, and it's probably one of the better ways that you can end a game is with something that like. Meaty, yeah, Manly. just like with man slapping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love yeah. games. I love games that end with man, man slapping. slapping. 
Yeah, it just... It... Shirtless man slaps. Mm. <laughs> it's the meatiest way to end a game. It really is. It's one of the meatiest end ways to end a game. Mm. I like, what I mean, of course, is actually, like, just having a fist fight with, like, the... Not only the final boss, but, like, the boss who is a direct clone of your character. Mm -hmm. Like, that kind of a boss fight is always set. It's just very well set up and executed. Like, it works on a lot of levels. Like, it works narratively. Uh, It's satisfying mechanically. It it, it fits the action movie theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, it just works. And I bet Guile's theme goes with it. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that makes the, like we're going to throw down our guns and all of our toys thing and the in actual action movies trope interesting? What? I just thought of what? how how bad this concept was botched in Assassin's Creed 2. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go listen to our episode on Assassin's Creed Much better be than like... punching the Pope to death. Yeah. That's, that should be the tagline of Metal Gear. Metal Gear Solid, better than punching the Pope to death. Yeah, because it totally does not work. What's his name, Desmond? No, that's the name of the real guy, Ezio. That's the one. Ezio's like, well, let's have an honorable duel, Pope. <laughs> <laughs> Throw down your weapons. Let's have a fist fight. Yeah. There it's ridiculous. Yeah. But here it actually works. Here it works really well because it's set up. In, in, in the same way, just like 80s action movies, the thing that makes those fist fights crazy is because you know that people can actually do fist fights, but that's not the predominant way that they interact with things. And in this game, you don't predominantly use the three hit combo to right. deal with problems. You use your like weaponry and contextual tools and things like that. So it functions in the same way as those movies where it feels like disempowerment, like just one force against the other. But it but they somehow manage to avoid like a lot of the pitfalls that having these contextual things do. This is something that I, I'm not sold about and I've mentioned a couple of times. Most of the times in action games like this, where you keep switching up like set pieces and new distinct mechanics, you fall into these like trouble circumstances. Lots of games like this really hamstring themselves by constantly switching their mechanics and constantly forcing you to like relearn new sets of interactions and things like this. Mm. Why does it work in this game? I think, it's, we touched on it earlier, I think as Chad was saying, is they don't really change the core mechanics. Is they force new scenarios into those mechanics. Yeah, it's because the controls in a Metal Gear game, uh, I think, uh, just personal opinion, I think to the detriment of Metal Gear Solid Five, but to the... Uh, like as a positive in every other Metal Gear Solid game, the the controls are really dexterous and they can really represent a lot of things, um, and you have a lot of actions available to you. So when it does switch it up and say like this is a fist fight, you have to punch this guy to death, it doesn't feel like it's a different thing. It's like they're just telling you to use a particular yeah. tool it's, that you're already familiar with. It's still with the, the same set. camera angle. It's still the same basic controls that you already know. Right. It's so, not like in Bayonetta where, like, it's an action game where you're punching and kicking and shooting stuff. And then you play and then Galaga. You, you do, yeah, you do, like, a Star Fox game. Yeah. Like, have it stapled onto it. It would be like in Bayonetta if they took away the guns and you just had to have a fist fight. Right. And it just controlled the same, you know? It's yeah. like 
they've kept the same mechanics and have forced a new scenario into it. Yeah, the bad version of this fight is the one where they give you where a, a screen pops up that says like X is a, a light attack, circle is heavy. Yeah, it's not like they tried to actually exactly. implement a new fighting game system. It's yeah. just the regular controls. Yeah, and, and, and it's, your it's, games have always been like this. They always have these like crazy contextual systems, so much so that most people will get through them without actually knowing all the different things you can do by like lightly pressing a switch instead of completely holding it down. This is exactly that was the exact comparison I was going to make. It's starting in Metal Gear Solid 2, they started having those like cuz the buttons were were pressure actuated. Mm-hmm. So you could actually they actually did have mechanics built into that, mm-hmm. but they chose them so well because it was things that weren't absolutely necess like at no point did it necessitate you actually doing things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh and this game does it propels it like the the fist fight especially at the end propels it forward so much with the theme of the game and the the tone of the scene leading up to it where it's like you don't even at no point you're like well it's like they're making me play a dumb fighting game now yeah. like you're just like now I got to punch like with snake to death because he's a fucking bastard <laughs> and <laughs> you're into it and you want to do it and i think that that, that helps or you don't want to do it because you find Liquid to be like a like, uh, sort of a sympathetic character, which I could totally buy at some point as, as well with his whole speech about getting all the shit genes. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, how did you feel about the narrative of Metal Gear Solid? Um, this is another thing where we've thrown around the phrase Kojima bullshit a lot. <laughs> I was expecting this game to be much weirder, actually, than it ended up being. Uh, I feel like later in the series it probably gets weirder. Mm-hmm. But, like, this, it felt really reserved at first. And once it started ramping up and getting weird, like, once you get to uh, probably Psycho Mantis on, is when I started enjoying the game a lot more. Because I... I never thought it got too weird or too over the top. Like, I thought it, it hit this sweet spot where all the weird stuff really made it memorable. And it I cared enough. Like, there were enough realistic character interactions. Like, like we were talking about before, I think this game strikes a really nice balance. Yeah. And we've actually managed yeah, to get all the game. way to here without ever saying Meryl's name. Yeah. I, I think I said it when I talked about the bathroom. Yeah. But I feel as though uh, the fact that they can have characters like Meryl in this game and have them actually make some amount of sense barring Solid Snake only ever talking about her ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like for the first four times you talk to her. <laughs> Yeah, like, they did a really good job with her character because they have the they build up a relationship between them and like Snake as the character has motivation to care about her. Then they put you in the torture scenario and they make it personal. Like yeah. if you fail it, then you feel like you failed her as a player. Or if you succeed, you're like, yeah, <laughs> I saved your life, bitch. Yeah. It's, it, 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 what's, what's weird is that it does take until that point before, like, the interpersonal relationship between the two characters actually starts to really, like, seem more believable. Yeah, it feels organic that way. Yeah. Like, it's like these extreme circumstances have made them develop feelings for each other. Yeah. Meaning that the one stumbling block is when Psycho Mattis is like, 
she has a, a large place in her heart for you, uh-huh. and you're like, I just all I was the all I was doing the whole time was hitting on her. Like, I, <laughs> I feel like this is impossible. If that's the case. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, other than that, I think she's well characterized. But it's the fact that she's like a rookie soldier who has like who you know her backstory bleeds into the backstory of this game and the idea of like genome soldiers and. Uh, uh, all of the subtext about war and, and people being born and bred for battle that they tend to they pushed further in later games in the series. Uh, Meryl's sort of like the poster child for that aspect of the narrative and the fact that they made her a character and made her a character who can be important I think is really uh, impressive. This game is the most heavy handed with its like message mm-hmm. uh, I think you kind of had to be back then though because you had limited space to get everything across right. like I think knowing Kojima anyway like he totally would have wanted to flesh Meryl out more so that that conversation with Psycho Mantis made more sense but like you just have to like cut stuff because you got like what like a gigabyte of space yeah. <laughs> for but, audio yeah like. <laughs> That was it. One thing I uh, I took note of when I heard this originally, uh, Rob Zachney said on uh, an episode of Idle Weekend, uh, <laughs> he was like, I, I feel like a lot of people, the first game that they ever play with subtext is a Metal Gear Solid game. As, <laughs> <laughs> like, their first exposure to subtext, like, comes from Kojima. I feel like that would almost be just... It would be less of an insult if it was this game, because the subtext is so, like, on front street. Especially when they, like, break the the game's general, like, presentation to just, like, give you live-action news footage. <laughs> Which, like, seems jarring, and especially in the abstract, when somebody was like, let's put, like, just footage of, of, a, of a bomb test yeah. in our game. So people were probably like... No? <laughs> like, that's weird. We shouldn't do that. But it works in this game See, I think to that's some extent. one of the only things that doesn't work. I thought that was, like, really weird and out of place. And I'm like, did they just put that in? I got some bad news for you. It continues through the whole series. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's definitely his attempt to try and staple a game that's doing its best to look cinematic and grounded, but obviously can't because it's a PlayStation 1 game. Yeah. He's trying to staple it to the real world with these scenes. Like he, He's already dealing with these really weighty real-world themes, and he knows that in games like that, it can be really hard for people's suspension of disbelief to allow them to treat the, like, square face people that they're seeing interact in front of them as if they're, you know, the people whose lives are going to be affected by nuclear war. Mm-hmm. So I think Kojima's weird solution to that was to try and be like, oh, I'm going to show them it's the real world by just putting the real world into this game. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I think the codec kind of helps with that too yeah like giving a more realistic looking illustration of everybody's faces really goes a long way absolutely and the kind of conversations themselves also added to uh, being able to like having the choice to have a long-form conversation with somebody to flesh out their character is a lot more effective than just having that person explain their character background mm. yep. which happens kind of a lot in games and this game gives you the option 
to like be like, I want to hear this. And in Metal Gear, generally I do. Yeah. I gotta admit, though, that I did find the ending versions of those, like, spaced out real-world grounded scenes extended to a point where it sort of broke for me and I find them kind of laughable. Like, once the deer hit screen, I, like, <laughs> it was just the heaviest hand, right? Yeah. It was a lead hand that was being forced on you as yeah. a player. He's usually really good at that kind of thing, but uh, his lead hand kind of... Uh... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could not find a way to uh, no, no, make that work. There, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Under the push of Kojima's you, you lead could, hand. You could see the lead hand of the designer there. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I've already been yelled at for talking already too much about sequels to Metal Gear. Uh, but I think that the ending of Metal Gear Solid 2 is like the absolute worst use of it. Because... They have this whole conversation, and I love all the dialogue, but it's just, like, people on the street forever. <laughs> like, it's, it's literally, like, 10 to 12 minutes of just footage of people walking. And I'm like, hmm, I really want to just see that bomb test from the first game again. <laughs> that was short and got the point across. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about, like, the different endings? Like, the fact that it has, like, a split... I don't really care. I, don't I mean, really... wasn't this one of the first games to really do something like that? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> honestly, honestly, no. I'm going to put my foot down here and say it's not interesting the way they did it. It's not, like, actively bad. It's not a terrible thing. But, like, whether or not Meryl dies and you end up leaving with your guy friend or your girlfriend, I don't think really informs that much of a difference in your character or the events that happened around it. Like, it's, like, really, in my mind, it's just a difference between who's sitting there beside you. I guess um, things yeah. have a little bit of a sadder tone after Meryl's departure. Yeah, with Otacon. And it makes a little bit more sense that Snake's being so, like, romantic about all the things he says. But I sort of always just chalk up that, like, weird heavy-handed romance to the narrative being heavy-handed. And I don't really think about it as inconsistency between Snake and his actions. Yeah. Like, I also, I think... Uh, I'm pretty sure that it's just canonical that Meryl dies. So, is it? Well, I mean, I'm I'm not a hundred percent, but I don't know how Otacon leaves the. Say, facility. I was gonna say I thought she was in four. She's in four. Oh, yep. They're did both you alive. spoil it? I did. You no. are I a nice guy for correcting me on the podcast. I didn't see <laughs> that. I didn't even know that was like. It's not an even an unknown thing. Yeah, it's uh, not even treated like a surprise. Just, I like, know shows so up as little about Metal Gear Solid Four. Don't. I'm I'm gonna play it. I know you will. I know you will. I'll probably dead. like it. You'll probably think it's all right. I mean, do you like playing high res, slightly worse versions of things the series has already done? Uh, I've played Metal Gear Solid Two. 13 times. I'm going to guess that I will enjoy playing the same content over again. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. I didn't bring this up naturally at any other point, but since you're having so much fun making Metal Gear Solid 2 references, <laughs> I want to say <laughs> that I think the weird sort of combination uh, that has come to define the series as a whole between the fantasy elements that are, he constantly, Kojima that is, wants to ground as hard as he can to these weighty 
like issues and reality mm-hmm. was done best in Metal Gear Solid 3 and I think it's a lot of the reason that people look fondly back on it which is sort of ironic since it takes place in the past so you like you know all this future conflict sort of stuff yeah but a lot of the stuff that's fantastical that happens in Metal Gear Solid 3 seems pulpy in the same way that people look at like it seems like it's intentionally being pulpy right. instead of being perceived as pulpy by other people because of the weird mix of stuff that's going on. Yeah. You 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 really don't have to look any further than the pain in Metal Gear Solid Three to see like how far they went to characterize the the actual like uh, magical realism that is in that game mm-hmm. as being like very localized to these characters. Yes. Like, and that's you know, and that's fine. Uh, the Metal Gear Solid 2 obviously does its bad guy team the worst, I think, of the whole... Of the first three games, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, they're way more integrated into the weirdness, and the weirdness is integrated more into the story. And that's really what separates it, because Metal Gear Solid 1 is a game about war. Yeah. And Metal Gear Solid 3 is a game about war and the people in the war. And Metal Gear Solid 2 is a game about games. Yes. Like, it's a it's a different sort of thing that is being gone for there. But way ahead of the curve on that. Oh, the game not. about games yeah. thing? It, it was so far ahead of the curve that, like, nobody got it at when it came mm-hmm. out. Like, most of the... I didn't get it. Like, yeah. it took me a while. I, say, yeah, I only know... I, I've never played the rest of the series, obviously. It's my right. first time playing any Metal Gear games, but... What I know about it, I find really fascinating, and I really want to play Metal Gear Two. Yeah, I, there's no way we. Oh, stop Metal Gear doing... Two Solid Snake on the NES. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> there's no way we're gonna get through this podcast without one day, day doing Metal Gear Solid Two. Well, it's like Chad's favorite game. So. I know, and it's unbelievably dense and has a ludicrous amount of things mechanically and narratively to unpack. Yeah. Yeah. So, look forward to that. Yeah, (laughs) next week. (laughs) Uh, Not really. Yeah, just kidding. You have to wait a long time. It's Mm -hmm. a long game. Way long. Also, we like spacing out things. It's not that long. It's like 13 hours. This game is like four hours if you skip all the (laughs) cutscenes. It's really short, this game. Like, even in retrospect, a way that I think is... Oddly not detrimental to the experience, it makes it feel even more like a movie than it already does, especially since you can sort of contextually expand the time of the game if you wanted to, but based on those Kodak conversations and yeah. little niche things that you can explore, explore like before. Uh, it makes the fact that it's on two discs like all the more sort of surprising and noticeable when you're like two and a half hours into a play experience and you're asked to put in a different piece of hardware it's just as crazy that the the game ends up being a two disc game on the gamecube like the twin snakes was two discs like that's crazy dude gamecube had lots of like stealth two disc games people almost never talk about this it's really weird i don't know a lot about the gamecube hardware i'm assuming it's a limitation of their like stupid tiny discs yeah i guarantee you it is yeah Yeah. so what you were actually saying yeah uh Basically, is the fact that it is, it the fact that it's like a two disc thing with such little gameplay makes it. I don't say such little with considerably less gameplay than you would expect from a two disc PlayStation One game, a la Final Fantasy VII. Yes, uh, which I actually think may have been three discs. It is three discs. That's fucking insane. Uh, <laughs> the third disc is all like for bonus content, though. Fair enough. Uh, 
<laughs> that it does like push it so close to the like it's just a movie thing that everyone likes <laughs> to talk about with this game. And uh, obviously it's something that they embrace. And oh, yeah. the game, the series has enough fans that it's obviously not a thing that a lot of people tend to think is a bad thing. But it is kind of wild to think about, like, just how much of this game you spend either in a cutscene or in a codec conversation. Yeah. I mean, for me, playing it for the first time, uh, it took me about, like, ten hours to, to play through this. So I think it's not as extreme on a first playthrough. Yeah. But, yeah, I think it, I really didn't find that, maybe because I was braced for it, but I didn't think the cutscenes were, like, that bad. I think it's all the optional codex stuff that really piles up in the memory. <laughs> yeah. Or the space. The, the, that gets, okay, the, the thing that I don't like that Metal Gear does, that I think all Metal Gears do, but we'll localize it here, is that occasionally you end up with a cutscene that leads into a codec conversation that leads into another cutscene. Mm-hmm. Like that like codec conversation sandwich situation that they get sometimes. That gets a little bit irksome, I think, because the strength of the codex conversation is that you can have them sort of whenever. Like if you were just like, if on a- in any other game you would have like paused to like send a text message or read a tweet or something, you could just boot up a codec conversation and like call someone and be like, "Hey, Natasha, what up?" And <laughs> she'll be like, "Well, the gun that you're using is kind of cool because uh, I don't do Russian accents." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think that that's that's one of their biggest things is like you you're not ever just sort of like listening to a conversation for an hour. But the cutscenes sometimes will just make you do that to get plot. Uh, but otherwise, I, I think they're pretty pretty well done. And the voice acting obviously helps. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We were just out of shit to talk about, about Metal Gear Solid 1. Shit. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, I have a question, because I saw you play it. I know how I play this game. Yeah. Uh, curious... Did you, like, just gun motherfuckers down in this game, like, ever? Like, just as, like, stress relief? I mean, in elevators. Okay, but otherwise you, like... Appeared. Yeah. <laughs> Twice <laughs> in a row. Uh, I, I was just kidding, because, like, the game has very little penalty for just murdering people. <laughs> in a way that, like, the later games totally do. Yes. Uh, and I found that to be, like, kind of weird to look back on, because, like, in Metal Gear Solid 2, they leave corpses. And that's such a huge change. Because in Metal Gear Solid 1, you can gun down 12 people and then hide behind a box, where in real life would be you would be, like, wading through viscera, and someone would just walk right by you. Right. I mean, whatever. <laughs> Nothing here. I think... Natural gamer instincts, in a lot of ways, really help mitigate that problem in this. Because what it does cost you is ammunition. And even though if you actually played the game really optimally, you'd probably be using a whole lot more ammunition than you're given, you still have this innate sense that you need to save these things. And it further incentivizes you to go the stealth route, even if it might be hypothetically possible that you could just gun people. Yeah. Yeah. There's also sort of... Like, they're clearly feeling out, uh, at least in the 3D space, a lot of these stealth sections moving over from the old 2D NES Metal Gear games. And I'm assuming because of 
the hardware limitations and wanting to do as much story as they did. Like, this game is, has surprisingly less stealth in it than I assumed that it would. Yeah. Uh, I don't like, For many reasons, if we've already described, I don't think it's an actively bad thing. In fact, this is still my favorite, I think, of the whole series personally, though I certainly can't argue that Metal Gear Solid 2 is, I think, the, the like, better achievement, so to speak. Uh, but... It, the, like for a, a, a for a marketed stealth action game, this had a lot more like m- movie style narrative vignettes than it did stealth action. Yeah, that's I think a fair way to put mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Luckily, it was good. Yep. And fortunately, it did not get into the like uh, boundless confusion that some parts of the later series games get into, mm-hmm. uh, making it a lot more palatable and generating an audience that was more prepared for that, I think. Yeah. Come and see us when we talk about Kingdom Hearts 3, when boundless confusion and alienating <laughs> audiences will be primary themes. Uh, also on podcast sidebar... You just wait until we do our commentary. <laughs> uh... It's also on podcast sidebar. Yeah. If there's a situation uh, where we do Kingdom Hearts 3, but we don't do Kingdom Hearts 2, and I have to rely on memories from 12 years ago. It's impossible. You won't be able no. to talk Yeah, about I would just literally be sitting here with my mouth not, open. Like, not only, uh, <laughs> you, you would have to play all the other Kingdom Hearts games to be able to talk about it. You like, would, it's, you're, it's literally that deep in the trenches now that you have to have played them all to have, any idea what the fuck's going on? It it the the barest minimum where you might be able to have some sense <laughs> is one, two, birth by sleep, dream drop distance. That's the floor. That's the floor. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Wow. And it's super beneficial to even though it's the worst game to play three five eight over two days. Uh. That fills in a lot of holes from two. Completely agree, uh, except for the fact that Dream Job Distance is actually the worst game. <laughs> it's the worst narratively. It's not the worst mechanically. You guys are verging into no longer on podcast sidebar territory. <laughs> <laughs> We're wrestling this sidebar from you. Yeah. So, uh, do you guys have any final thoughts on Metal Solid 1? I'm going to keep being surprised how well this is going to hold up in the future mostly by virtue of how many design traditions that it informed. Like I can't I can't imagine a future of gaming that is not going to have like big mainline AAA titles that have a lot to thank Metal Gear Solid for. I think that's cool. Yeah. Uh and for me, uh, I probably came off like fairly negative. You <laughs> both like Metal Gear Solid a lot. But yeah, I definitely feel like I definitely appreciate the game. I realize all that it did for the medium, and I I really wish, blah 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 blah. Fuck this game, etc. etc. But no, I I think developers like Kojima are really important, even if they're crazy people. Like to keep pushing what you can do with video games, and I obviously realize that Metal Gear. There's a lot to thank Metal Gear for in that regard, and. Um, yeah, I think my biggest thing is I felt like this game didn't hold up as well because of expectation. Yep. Yeah. They I should... mean, like, anybody who plays, like, Final Fantasy VII or Ocarina of Time now could have the same exact experience with those games. Yeah. Absolutely. So, 
not a knock on the quality of the game. It's just my own personal experience is not ideal. Yeah. yeah. Much like the personal experience of soldiers embedded in modern <laughs> <universe>. <laughs> forced to fight day in, day out. For causes they don't believe in. And, and, and then it I turns imagine. out it's just a simulation <laughs> put on by the Lali Lule Lo. Uh, but I mean, I think that goes without saying. Obviously. Chat, I was hoping to keep doing that for five minutes while you put dramatic USA music behind me. <laughs> oh, sorry. And then turned it by into a video podcast by surprise, <laughs> zooming out from our logo and into dramatic scenes of the wildlife and explosions. The more that. Oh, fuck. I could totally. That's, too, that's so easy that I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> just on the, but then the people who listen on like iTunes or whatever right. would be sad. And putting it at the very end probably isn't worth it at all. Mm. We'll see. <laughs> well, we can't do it now. I didn't rant for long enough. It wasn't a Metal That's Gear true. Solid quality rant. Yeah. And anyway. I kind of think this is like my least favorite game in the series to play, but also one that I weirdly think is just like... Yeah, like, it's it's strange how hard it is for me to separate my experience playing the game, where I'm like, uh, there are so many things that I like about this series that this game doesn't do as well, but I'm like, this game is fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, there's so much in this game that's really good from pretty much every perspective that you can look at it, and, uh, I get it, I don't know, that's, that's really how I feel. I feel like it's super good, but then when I'm playing it, I'm like, I don't know if this is super good. <laughs> I think fucking awesome might be the single most positive thing that we've like the the highest review bar we've ever set for anything we've ever talked about. Have we ever it's, cleared fucking awesome? That's such a it's such like a it's a loaded term because like when I say fucking awesome, I don't mean like this game is impeccable ten out of ten in every way. It's like a game that literally you're just like in awe. Yeah. Uh, it's a game that warrants the term awesome because of its legacy and the impact that it made and just the cool shit that it does. And uh, I, I just don't... I don't know that I've described another game that way. We've definitely talked about... Like, Shadow of the Colossus is fucking awesome. Yep. Yes. Uh, and it's another game that I don't think is an impeccable, like, masterpiece. I do. It is a masterpiece, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. We're going on too far. Right, right, Thank right. you for listening to Noclip this week. What are we talking about next time? Uh, next time we're going to talk about a fucking awesome game <laughs> uh, called Trauma Center Second Opinion. Yes. Uh, which will be, that second opinion, the one that was released on the Wii, uh, just in case it matters, in case somebody's <laughs> not aware. Because there are several others, but I think this one actually got the most sort of coverage when it came out because of its use of the, the Wii remote. Uh, until then, if you want to get a hold of us, all of our contact information is on NoClipPodcast.com. Uh, an email address, Twitter, YouTube, etc., etc. Check it out. Have a good time. Listen to some of our older episodes. And then send us email telling us that we're fucking awesome. <laughs> it's like, for some reason, the catchphrase this episode. Until you, like, emergency cut the podcast, <laughs> I was going to suggest that we that we create, like, a like owned version of our Nintendo seal of approval. The most important seal. <laughs> the no the fucking, fucking awesome seal. Approval. <laughs> Uh, I think we could probably work that out. Good. All right. All right. Woo! Next time. In which case, 
then the AI is sentient. I don't think it makes the hermit crab less sentient. <laughs> I agree. All right, I'm glad that we solved that. <laughs>